Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you this morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're visiting us for the very first time today, I want to welcome you to Grace. My name is Nathan. I hope you sit back and relax and enjoy your Sunday morning. If you didn't know that you needed a Bible today because it's your first day and uh, you didn't know we're a Bible teaching church, well, use your phone. You brought your phone with you. You always have your phone with you. Just type into Google the, the ti- title or the, the verse today is 1 Timothy 2. So you type in 1 Timothy 2 and it'll take you to a link where you could follow along with us today. This is a series that's all about the building blocks of a local church. What makes a church a church? What makes a church a church and not a community service club like the Lions Club? What makes, what makes the church different from a Christian nonprofit organization like the Salvation Army? What makes the, the church the church? What makes us different than a Christian college or a university or a seminary? What makes us different than like an affinity club where we just all happen to like the same thing together? Now, by the way, my bean burrito connoisseurs club, it's going well. Thank you very much. We found a new place that makes great green burritos, but I'm not going to tell you where it is because you're not a part of the club. What makes us different than just an affinity group where we all just happen to like Jesus together and so we just meet together? What makes a church a church? Well, we found out that we don't get to define what a church is or how it operates. Because if it was that way, we'd all be meeting at Dodger Stadium right now, and we'd all be doing cannonballs into the baptismal to get into heaven. That's how it would be for me. That's, that would be my church would be like that. So we don't get to decide. But God in His grace and God in His, uh, in His determination has defined the DNA of a church. He is the one that has defined the foundations and the, the organization of a local church. And so far, this is where we've been that biblical churches are built upon Jesus Christ and the gospel. As a matter of fact, they are the pillar or the support or the uplifting of God's revealed word, the truth. And then these churches consist of Christians who are counted as members within those churches. And then those members select from among themselves leaders of that church, the deacons and deaconesses and the elders. And what's unique, though, with these members that select these leaders is that these leaders serve in even a greater way than the members even serve within the church. They are to remember Jesus Christ, but they don't do it through putting a painting on the wall or through putting a a statue of Jesus in the lobby. They remember Jesus Christ through communion, and they join in discipleship, or they begin to live for Jesus through baptism. And these Christians who were counted within the church, as they select the the leaders of the church, as they uh, participate in communion and are baptized to begin to live for Jesus Christ, then they begin to live as a body, a single body, individual members of a body, and simultaneously serve one another. And so that is the biblical core so far of a local church. Now, maybe you've been in a church that did it differently than that, or maybe you would do it differently than that, or maybe you don't like the way that it's done. I get it. But we don't get to decide the way that a church operates. God is the one that decides the organization of the church. And these are the building blocks of a church for all of time, for all of culture, uh, for any place in the world. 50 AD, 70 AD, 100 AD, that's about the range of Scripture, the New Testament. But these are the same building blocks that are to be in any biblical church in 1000 AD 
or 1700 AD or 1999. Anywhere in the world, in the United States, in Israel, in Russia, in the African tribes, in Cambodia, wherever you go, in whatever culture you go there, at whatever time in in time, Whatever time you go there, whatever year you go there, these are the building blocks of the church. And this is important to remember for our topic for today, which is the role of men and women in the church in 2023. Today's going to be one of those controversial, one of those controversial passages. This is going to be one of those for some of you that you're going to need a seatbelt <laughs> to stay in your chair. <laughs> this, is, this is one of those that, uh, that you might do it differently. This is going to be one of those where you might have grown up in a church that did do it differently. This is one of those passages that uh, you might say, you know, this is why I don't like organized religion. This is why I don't like, I I love Jesus, but I just don't, I don't appreciate the organization that's, that's there. This is one of those passages that have been abused by churches and people in the past. So now you're wondering, what in the world are we studying? Well... 2 Timothy chapter 2, let's read this passage. It says, first of all then, in verse 1, 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, first of all then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, And one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. A woman must not must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created and then Eve. And it was Adam who was the, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I told you it was controversial. Who wants to preach this sermon instead of me? (laughs) Oh, anybody come here and preach this one instead of me. The title for today is We Fulfill Our Roles. That's the title for today. We Fulfill Our Roles. Did you know that God made men and women different? Did you know that God made men and women unique? Now, I, I'm not trying to make some sort of political controversial statement. For all of eons, that has never been a controversial statement until like today. But it's not a controversial statement. Men and women are different. They are unique. And that's a wonderful thing. That's the way that God created them. And they created them for different roles, different purposes. He created different roles for men in culture, men in the home, and men at church. And he created different roles for women in the culture, women in their home, and women at church. This is a wonderful thing. This is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. But men and women are different. A man cannot be a woman, and a woman 
cannot be a man. It's impossible. After you die, when you grow, when after you die, a hundred years later, they dig up your bones. They're just going to look at your bones, and they can tell by your bone structure. They can even sometimes tell by just one bone that you're a man or a woman. That's just the way that it is. You can't put on enough makeup or enough clothing or enough plastic surgery to change you, to change your bone structure, to change your DNA. It is biologically impossible for a man to become a woman or a woman to become a man. It is spiritually impossible. It is theoretically impossible for a man to become a woman or a woman to become a man. But that's a good thing. That's the way that God created it, that, that men would be unique and women would be unique, and then that they would fulfill their roles. And so, like I said, there are, are roles for men in the society and, and men in the home and men in the church, and the same for women in society and, and in their home and in the church. Now, our topic for today is the church, the role of men and women in the church. Did you know that God, through this passage and others in Scripture, defined the role of men and women in the church? Now, he didn't do this because he hates men and he loves women. And he didn't do this because he's misogynistic and hates women but loves men. He did this because he loves his family. He did this because he, he wanted us to know how to live in harmony together. As a matter of fact, that's whole, our whole purpose, to understand the orderliness of our gathering together. Our whole focus of this entire passage is just one chapter over in 1 Timothy 3.15. We studied this at length for the first couple weeks in this series. He says, I write so that you would know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. God just, he loves us so much that he wants us to be orderly. And, and when it's not orderly, chaos breaks out. And that's certainly what happens in some churches when they don't read passages like the ones that we've been reading. So now let's get back and let's begin to read and understand the role of men and women from this passage. Let's look at first men, the role of men in the church. That's verses 1 through 8, or the role of men within the church. Then verses 9 through 15 is the role of women within the church. And so what is the role of men, males, within the church? Well, I'm just going to give it to you right off, and then I'm going to show it to you in Scripture. But the role of men are twofold. One, to submit to God. And then, secondly, to submit to authorities. That's the role of men within the church, to submit to God and to submit to governing authorities. Now, let's look at the second one first. The second one first, authorities. Look at verse 1 back in 1 Timothy 2. It says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, this whole sub submit thing, <laughs> this does not come naturally to guys. This does not come naturally to, to men. It, is, it goes against every grain, <laughs> every fiber of our being. Because you know what a guy will say? Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> and then if you do tell me what to do, I'm going to tell you where to shove it. That's what guys think. And if you shove me, I'll shove you harder. I'll finish it. That's how guys think. 
And so this whole submit thing, submitting to God and submitting to authorities, does not come naturally to a man. Now let's look back at these verses here. It says, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet and tranquil a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Notice that Paul does not say fight the power. He does not say fight the power. He does not say create some guerrilla group and uh, be subversive and, and go and rebel against the uh, tyrannical uh, political uh, agenda in, in your country or in your nation. He doesn't say that. He, he tells men to go against their grain to, to do something that doesn't come natural for them, and that would be to submit to the authorities that God had placed over them. And the only weapon that they are to use is prayer. That's the only weapon that they're to use against their governing authorities. And that prayer isn't, I hope they die. <laughs> that prayer isn't, I hope they get ousted. That prayer is for their salvation, because, of course, that's where real change would happen, wouldn't it? When the governing authorities who were opposed to God are now being obedient to God, that's where everything would, would turn. And so notice at the end there, it says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. If a, if, if a church ever has the freedom to meet like that, if a church ever has the freedom to meet in tranquility and quietness and, and dignity, it's because they are meeting in a nation, they're meeting in a country whose, whose leaders of that country are obedient to God. They are submissive to God. That's the place where you would experience that kind of worship. So unless a, the governing authorities, unless, unless the politicians require Christians to do something that God tells them not to do, then those Christians are to be submissive to those governing authorities, and they are to pray for those governing authorities. And the men in that church are going to be the ones leading the prayers, and they are going to be the ones modeling for the rest of the church to be obedient to the governing authorities. And unless those governing authorities tell that church not to do something that, the, that God directly tells them to do, then they are not going to rebel. They're going to do something that goes against every grain of their, every, every grain of their nature. Now, they might go home and complain to their families about it all, but they are going to lead prayers for their church, for salvation for those people, and they are going to lead their church in being submissive to those governing authorities. And so, like I said, the this passage talks about two roles of men within the church. One is to submit to the authorities, the governing authorities, which submission already just goes against every, every part of who a man is. But, of course, this is for men in the church, men who are believers. Now, let's look at the second one there. Men are to submit to God. That's the main point here, and that's the point that we're going to spend a little more time on. Let's, let's put the bookends of these two of this passage together. Let's put the, the first verse and the last verse together, and it gives us a perspective of what he expects men to be doing in the church. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Verse 8, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Well, God makes obviously two things clear here through Paul. One is 
that the church is going to be a praying church, one, and two, the, the leaders of that worshipful prayer are to be men. Now, this is not talking about your devotional prayer at home. This is not talking about private prayer at home. This is talking about the male leadership of the worship services that these groups of people are going to attend together. Now, neither of these two things are a guy's A game. Neither one of these two things are in the wheelhouse of a man. Being a spiritual leader, that's not an A game for a guy. Now, being a leader at work, being, being a leader on the basketball court, yeah. Being a spiritual leader, that's not a guy's A game. And maybe even less A game would be that he would be a man of prayer. Those two things are difficult for a man. I'm not putting men down. I am one. I just know them. (laughs) Those things are difficult for a man because a man doesn't need help. Just just think, men don't need help. We're get-it-done kind of people, you know? I don't need instructions. I can do it. I don't need directions. I can do it. You ask a guy, can I help you lift that? What are they going to tell you? No, I got it. Because men are get-it-done kind of people. They don't need help. Sometimes uh, Pastor Chuck, Pastor John, and I, sometimes we have to move the chairs off of these raised sections or put the chairs back or whatever. And so when we're putting the chairs back, you know, we have big, tall stacks of chairs, and I'll take two off, and I'll carry them up. Of course, what does Pastor Chuck do? He carries three. Because... That's what guys do. We're get-it-done kind of people. And, of course, Pastor John, Pastor John rolls along. He gets six chairs, boom, right up the right thing. Because men are get-it-done kind of people. And so here's the math. Here's why it's hard for a man to be a man of prayer. Why should I pray and not just go get it done? I, I, I just, let me just do it. <laughs> Why should I pray? I can just do it. Now, of course, that might work at your job. That might work when you're selling things. That might work in the construction world. That might work in law enforcement. That might work when you're driving your RV in retirement. Is that what you do in retirement? I don't know. But that does not work in a local church. And the reason that the get it done, I don't need to pray, doesn't work in a church is because the church is in an arena where it's not just about getting it done. There are many other things that are occurring that that no human being can just get done. And so these men now within this church are called to do something that that just goes against every fiber of their being. First, it's just to submit, period. But then it's submitting to God in these areas which are not their A-games. Most guys will defer from things, doing things that are not their A-game because most guys, they want to be good at something. And so most men won't go towards things that are difficult for them, like being a spiritual leader or like praying. Now, what are these men in the church, what are they praying for? Well, if you look at verses 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy 2, it tells us, it says, it's a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, 
who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If the church is going to be God's church, then obviously they need to be interested in the things that God's interested in. And, and if it's going to be God's church, then it's going to be men in that church who hold the, the leadership of that church, and an aspect of that leadership of that church is they are going to be praying men. And in this way, men are going to submit to God in this. This is not something that comes easy. This is not something that comes natural. This is not a man's A game, but they are going to lead because God has called them to lead, and so they're going to submit to God in that area. Now, who is this? Who is doing this? Who are these men? Well, look at the next look at verse 8 and tells us who these men are. It says, "Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray." lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, when he says lifting up holy hands, he's not referring that the men must pray in a certain stance, and the, the height of the hands determine how effective or how effectual their prayers are. This is referring to their hands being clean, not clean with sanitizer, but their lives being clean. These are godly men. These are pure men. These are holy men. Not that they're perfect, because no man can be perfect. But they are living their lives for Christ, and they are in submission to God, not only inside these four walls on Sunday morning during this one hour, but these men who are leading within the church are in submission to God in other places too, like the other six days of the week. In the other four walls that they inhabit, like at work, they're in submission to God. And at home, they're in submission to God. It's not only here that they are in submission to God. And so the leaders of these prayers, of these corporate worship services, are to be these men. Now, it's not limited to pastors. It's not limited to elders. It's limited to men who are living a godly life, not only on a Sunday morning, but on another day of the week as well. And you're like, well, what kind, of, what kind of things are they doing? Well, if you turn in your Bible to the right, a couple pages to Titus, Titus chapter 2, probably three pages to your right. Titus chapter 2. Titus has another example of roles of women and roles of men in the church. Titus chapter 2. Paul wrote both letters to different men, and he gives some specific things of who these holy men are, of who these godly men are and what they're doing, how they are submissive to God within the church. Okay, so let's look at Titus chapter 2, look at verse 1. It says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Now skip down to verse 6 because verses 3, 4, and 5 are about the women within the church. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Verse 6, likewise, I urge young men in the church to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing to, bad to say about us. And so these are the type of men, you can go back to, to 1 
Timothy now. These are the type of men that are lifting up their hands in leadership, in prayer particularly, for their church. They are living a godly life not just in these four walls. They're living a godly life outside these four walls. They're living in it as an example for the rest of the Christians in the church to follow their example. So the first role of a man in his local church is to submit to God by taking the spiritual leadership within the church. Now, if I know most guys, which I don't know all guys, but if I know how guys think, this is how guys would think. They think, that's a lot of work. I work 40, 50, 60 hours a week at work, and none of this is my A game. And so I'll just allow my wife to lead at church. Well, that's what the next verses are about. What's the woman's role within the church? Men's role, submit to God, submit to the authorities. Now, look at verse 9 of 1 Timothy 2. It says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braiding of hair, gold pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. You can see why 1 Timothy is rarely taught in churches. It is. You can, you can, look, you can look at sermon series in, in various churches. 1 <laughs> Timothy is rarely taught. And this passage, 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15, you aren't going to find many churches preaching on this. You can see why. If this was any other subject, it, nobody had any problem, problem with it. If, if the topic was the role of dogs at church, nobody had a problem with this. If the topic was the role of kids in the church, nobody would have a problem with it. If the topic here was tattoo-laden, Harley-riding, stogie-smoking, uh, long-haired dudes in the church, nobody would have any problem with this. But as soon as we get to women, now it brings up a whole lot of controversy. But this is God's Word, and so let's look at the role of women within the church. Now, let me just give it to you, and then I'll show it to you. First, the role of women is to submit to God, and secondly, the role of women in the church is to submit to the godly leadership within the church. Notice that both for men and women, these are things that do not come naturally to either one of them. The role of men is to submit to authorities that God has placed above them, to submit to God. The role of women is the exact same thing, to submit to the men in the church that God has placed there and to submit to God. Well, let's look at the first one first. Let's look at submitting to, to God. That one's easier. Let's look at submitting to God. It says, likewise, verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair, gold pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So God's talking to women who are getting dressed for church. And he says that he wants them to focus in, when they're getting ready to go to church on Sunday morning. 
He wants them to focus more on the internal, the type of godly woman that she is internally, than for her to focus on the external as she is getting ready for church on a Sunday morning. And just as it is hard for men to be praying men, and just as it is hard for men to, to, to be a spiritual leader, it is hard for women, when they are getting dressed, to, to think less about what people think of them. It's hard. It's just not their A game. Generally, this isn't true for men. Men generally don't have this problem, generally. Just look around the room. <laughs> we have guys who picked a shirt up off the floor, gave it a good smell, and figured it would go for another hour and a half. And their wife sitting next to them is dressed to the nines. Now, I'm not saying that the guys are more godly because they, they, they smell their shirts before they come. I'm just pointing out that this generally isn't a, a problem for guys about being concerned about what other pe- people think of them externally. This is more of a challenge for women. And so he says in verse 9, he says that, I want to, them to adorn themselves with proper clothing. That word adorn there is the Greek word cosmos. So, like orderliness or with a design or on purpose. And so, as you're getting ready in the morning, it's not sloppy, it's in good taste. But then also it says there that as you're getting ready in the morning, coming to church, that there should, it should be modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, or gold pearls, or costly garments. There's nothing wrong with you owning pearl earrings. There's nothing wrong with you having a, a, a gold wedding band. That, that's not the point here. The point here is, it's emphasizing for women that as they're getting ready, that they would focus more internally and they would not be particularly concerned about what other people think of them. They're not dressing for attention, external attention. If, if anything is to draw attention to, to them, it would be something else. Verse 10, look at verse 10. It says, "...but rather by the means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness." And so the only way that a, a woman should desire to draw attention to herself would be in the internal spiritual parts of who she is, that she is a godly woman. And so this is a pretty, this is a fine line. How does a woman determine this line, the fine line in between getting dressed so that I bring attention to myself and getting dressed so that, so that I don't bring attention to myself and yet my godliness is my priority. My internal condition is my priority. How would a woman determine that? Well, in her motives. She knows why she's getting dressed in the morning. She, she knows what's in her heart. And so if her desire is to call attention to herself or to, to flaunt her wealth with all the bling or to flaunt her physical assets 
It's going to show in the things that she puts on and what she wears when she comes to, to church. And so the first role of a woman is to submit to God by dressing modestly, hoping that her godly character is the, the only thing that is noticed. And in this way, a woman is submissive to God in this way. This is not an agate. This, is, this is not, does not come by nature. This does not come naturally. But this is what a godly woman will do, woman will do in the local church. Now, secondly, a godly woman will submit to the leadership of the godly men that we've already talked about in the first part, in verses 1, to eight, 1 through 8, that they will submit to the godly leadership of men. Now, look, look at verse 11. It says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. This also runs completely contrary to human nature. Just like it is contrary for a man to submit, it is also contrary to human nature for a woman to submit. This is a, it's a human condition that we don't want to submit. And so, just as the role of the woman is in the home to follow the leadership of her husband in the home, so too when she gets to church that she would follow the male leadership within the church, which should be their husbands, by the way. That's the whole point. That it wouldn't be difficult when it was their, their husbands who were living a godly life at home and at work, and so when they got here, their wives would have no problem fitting into the same plan as it was back at home uh, for, for them. And I, I get that if this sermon ends up, uh, if I ever run for president, not going to happen, but if I ever ran for president, that this sermon would be brought up and I would be crucified for just these words that are coming out of my mouth here right now. But it's not our culture that defines the role of men and the role of women. God defined all of this all the way back at creation. Now, for clarity, the Old Testament and the New Testament never demeans women and never infers that there is an inferiority between men and women. So just for clarity about God's perspective of men and women in the uniqueness that He created them, this is what, what uh, Paul says in Galatians 3. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you all are all one in Christ. Now, for clarity, it's not saying that there is none, because there are still Jews today, there are still Gentiles today, there are, there are still slaves in the world today, and there are still people who are not slaves today, and there are still males that exist in our world today. We're not like one amorphous gender or something like that. There are males and there are females, but when it comes to Christ... There's equality among all of them. We are all equal when it comes to spiritual things. Equal in all things. We are equal. Men and women are equal in our depravity. Men and women are equal spiritually in our depravity. 
We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory. Have you fallen short of the, God's glory? Hey, are, have you, have you, are you slightly less than God's glory? Men have fallen short of God's glory. Women have fallen short of God's glory. Every single person, both male and female, are equal in their depravity with sin. Every single one. And every single person, both male and, and female, then has an equal discipline that comes because of that sin. We are all destined to hell. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God in a place called hell because of our sin, every single one. It's not just that the men are going to hell because of their sin. It's not just the women are going to hell because of our sin. We're equal. Aren't you glad we're equal in that? We're all equal in our depravity, and we're all equal in the judgment that comes as an aspect of our own sin. We're equal. Spiritual equals. We are all equals in our desperate need of mercy. We are all equal in our desperate need for grace that would only come from God. It's not only men that need God's grace. It's not only women that need God's mercy. We all need God's grace. and We are equal, completely equal spiritually. And so when Jesus Christ came from heaven, the second person of the Trinity, he didn't come just for men. And he didn't come just for women, because as the Bible says, it says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he would bring us to God. He didn't say for, the Bible doesn't say for Christ also died for sins once for men, (laughs) or once for women. We are all equal in our depravity. We're all equal in our judgment of our own sin. We are all equal in our need for God's grace and mercy. Uh, we are, we're all equal when God's love was poured out to us in Jesus Christ. In any person, either male or female, when they put their faith, their belief, their trust upon Jesus Christ, that he is who the Bible says that he is, they all will receive an equal amount of God's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come and live inside of them equally. It's not like half of the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of a woman and a full amount comes and lives inside of a man. No. The Holy Spirit is a seal or promise that, God, that God's going to take your soul to heaven when you die. And so when you put your faith upon Christ, both males and females, both men and women, they all have God's Holy Spirit living inside of them. We're all equal. Men and women are equal in the amount of heaven that we will live in. We will all equally live in heaven. And we all experience equally God's wonderful love. We are equal. That's what this verse is saying. Spiritually, there is equality, and that's wonderful. But spiritual equality between men and women doesn't remove the differences in the roles that they have in society, and the roles in their home, and the roles at church. One is not inferior, and the other is superior. We're all equal in Christ, but we all play different roles. Now, we get to some of those roles. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, it says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. This means that the women are not to take the leadership position of teacher within a church. That women are not to wrestle away the leadership within the church, away from the men in the church. This position of teachers in authoritative office, 
It's the declarer of the doctrine within the church. But can women teach? Yes, women can teach. Turn in your Bibles back to Titus. Three pages to your right again, Titus chapter 2. Nowhere in the New Testament is a woman ever presented as a, a teacher in the worship service. A woman is never presented as a pastor. A woman is never presented as an elder in the New Testament church. Not once. But they can teach. Okay, Titus 2. Remember, we read the, the guy's part, the men's part in this. Now let's look at the role of women. It says, older women likewise are to be fervent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So can women be teachers? Yeah. It says, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And so absolutely women can teach. Women are to teach. Older women, now not specifically referring to age, but often that is the case, but spiritually mature women are to teach less spiritually mature women how to love their kids, how to love the Lord, how to fit into her, her husband's leadership lovingly within the home and the church. That's what a woman is teaching. So a woman definitely can teach. She's teaching other women within the church. Now go back to the book of 1 Timothy again, just with that clarification, 1 Timothy 2. Now, what's interesting about Timothy, the guy, Timothy, Paul, the apostle, is writing this to his protege, Timothy. Timothy was led to Christ by his mom and his grandma, both women. And so was Timothy taught by a woman? Yes. As a child, he was definitely taught by women. So can women teach? Yes. Women can teach other women. Women can teach children. And that's a wonderful role that they play within the church. Now we get to some chronology here, verse 13. Now, let me get back to chapter 2. Verse 13, it says, it was Adam who was first created, and then it was Eve. This goes all the way back to Genesis, the chronological order of Adam and Eve, of the first man and the first woman. And the insinuation, or at least the implication, as you read that in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the order of Adam being created uh, and, and, then, and then Eve being created, the insinuation, or, 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 or at least the, the way that you could deduce is, well, the man, based on the order, the man is to be the, the lead, the head of the home, and the woman is to fit into his headship of the home. And now, in the New Testament, God confirms our suspicions. Yes, that's the case. The orderliness of creation defined everything that's being taught today. Our culture didn't get to define it. We don't get to define it whether we like it or not. We don't get to define it if it would get us fired from our job. This is the way that God defined it on the, first, on the sixth day of creation. And the, the definition is done. 
He's the one that's defined this. Now, a little more uh, chronology of what occurred way back in the day. Verse 14, it says, It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, this goes all the way back into the Garden of Eden after they were created. And God told Adam to uh, God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he told him to go out and name all the animals. And he was going out and naming all the animals... Not a single animal talked back to him. You know, there wasn't, the monkey said, hey, can you name me a monkey? You know, the, the hippo didn't say, hey, give me a really hard one. It didn't say anything like that. Nobody talked to him. That's one of the reasons that he needed someone else because the animals were obviously nowhere in connection or relationship with him. And so then God creates Eve, and apparently Eve, um, she didn't know that either all animals couldn't talk or at least that snakes didn't talk. And so one day when she was alone, or at least not with Adam immediately at her shoulder, the, the snake talked to her, and instead of her going to her spiritual and emotional head, Adam, she decided to listen to the snake instead. Now, in case women might be offended by all of this, Verse 15 is a wonderful verse. It's a very interesting statement and a very unique way to conclude um, this topic. He says this, But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. What does that mean that women will be preserved through childbearing? What does that, what does that mean? Well, it could mean two things, maybe one implicit and one maybe more explicit, but one would be that it was through the childbearing of a woman that we have the opportunity of salvation, that if it wasn't for Mary giving birth to Jesus Christ, <laughs> none of us would be preserved. Women play an important role. That's the point. That's the point he's making. Women play an important role within the church. None of this is inferiority. None of this is demeaning. It's various roles. As a matter of fact, Mary, it was Mary who, through the bearing of children, preserved literally mankind through Jesus Christ being born, living a perfect life, and then dying on the cross for our sins. Now, also, though, I think the role of being a mother and bearing children, giving birth, and then teaching her own children... And, and raising her children in the things of God can bring just as much fulfillment and, and probably more impact on people directly than those godly male leaders in the church. What a unique way to end this, that men play an important role within the local church. Women play an important role within the church. For women, it's just like men. We're submitting to God in areas that are not our A-game. We're submitting to the leadership of the people that God put in leadership above us, even though they may not deserve it. We're submissive to them in that area because we're submissive to God. Now, you might be doing the math, and you might be thinking, so are you saying, Pastor, that women are not to be 
pastors in the church? Are you saying that women are not to be elders within the church? No, I'm not saying that. God is saying that. He's the one that defined it. If God put in Scripture that, that, that women would be the leaders in the church and that their husbands would fit into their leadership, every husband would be like, yes, I don't have to do it. But God's ways aren't our ways. Our ways aren't God's ways. Who are we to, as, as sinful people to second-guess the authority of the God who placed us here in the first place? So here's, here's what this passage teaches us. One, the role of men is to submit to God and to submit to the authorities. To submit to God by taking the spiritual leadership within the church, by being praying men, by living godly, example, exemplary lives, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week. In all of these ways, we are submissive to the Lord. Of course, then, we also lead our church in submitting to the authorities that God has placed above us, even if they don't deserve it. Secondly, women, then, in the same way, they submit to God. Not the, different, not the same type of submission, but submission nonetheless. They submit to God by, by focusing on their internal condition, not on their external presentation. And they follow the leadership that God has placed within the, in the church. They fit into the directions and the plans and the guidance of the men who are leading in that church. Now, you might think that that's too hard. Guys, you might say, it's just, I work a long week, and it's too hard to, to submit to God to, on the weekends. It's hard to submit to God to at home. It's hard to submit to God to, it's hard to submit to the authorities. That, that just rails against every part of me. Or ladies, you might say that this is, this is impossible. It's, it's impossible for me not to think about what other people are, are, are looking at when I'm getting dressed. It, it's hard to, to submit to God in this area of, of focusing on my internal, not my external. It's hard to follow the, the leadership of men in the church. I mean, who are they? Well, if that's, if that's what you're thinking, that this is really hard, that's what verses 5 and 6 are for in this passage. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus knows what it's like to submit. Jesus knows what it's like to play a role. Who did Jesus have to submit to? I mean, think about it. Who did Jesus have to submit to? And to submit, well, one, he submitted to God the Father, and they're equals. And yet he submitted to God the Father when he came out of heaven, he came to earth. And then who else did he have to submit to? His parents. Oh, man. His, his parents were so inferior to him. I know most teenagers think their parents are inferior to them. I get it. But that was really true. That when Jesus was a teenager, he did know more than his parents. He, he did have a higher calling than his parents. He was God in the flesh, and yet he submitted to them every single time, never disobeyed his parents once. Who else did he submit to? He submitted to those people who were his persecutors, and, and he could have just, with a snap of a finger, not even a snap, just like a, 
just a wink, just a wiggle of the ear, they all could have just been dust. And yet he, he submitted to them in the brutality of his murder, in, in being demeaned, in being beat, he submitted to them. And so Jesus knows what it's like to be submissive. And he knows what it's like to, to play a role, to be a part of God's, God's purpose. And so if you're at the point of thinking that this is too hard, but I know it's right, but it's just really hard, you're in good company. Jesus knows what it's like. And he, he is our example in, in our submission. Now, maybe there's one or two of you here today who have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and I at least want to give you a, a chance to consider your eternal state. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that when you believe upon Him, He will remove your sin. He will separate your sin as far from you as the east is from the west. You might say, well, He could never forgive me for the things that I've done. Oh, yeah, Jesus actually already died for that. The Bible says that all it does is take faith, belief, putting your faith in Jesus, believing that He is everything that I've said that He is, that He is God, that He died on the cross for your sins, and He rose from the grave. Do you believe that? Well, you just talk to God about it. You, you, you talk to God in the quietness of your own heart. So I'm going to ask all of you, would you all be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? It just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you for a minute. There's nothing spiritual or, or more righteous about bowing your heads. It just creates distraction-free for a minute. And if you've never put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, well, now's the time for you to. You can talk to God in the quietness of your own heart. You don't need to say anything out loud. God knows what you're thinking. And this is what you could say. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I, I need a Savior. I know that I am depraved. I know that hell is in my future. And I need someone to rescue me from my sin. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he lived a perfect life. And I believe that he died on the cross, not for his sin, but I believe that he died on the cross for mine. And I put my, my own personal faith in this Jesus. I put my trust in this Jesus. I put my eternity in the hands of this Jesus. With your head still bowing, your eyes still closed, God, the Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside of you too, just like He has me and other believers all around the world. And He is there to take your soul to heaven when you die. And God, we as a church family, we praise you. We thank you for your provision for us. We thank you for... Uh, the, the, the giving of your son to all of us equally. We thank you for your equal love that you have provided to us. And God, we thank you also, though, for revealing the roles that we are to play and the, and the way that that makes our local church such an orderly pr- place. So God, I pray that you would help us to follow through on the things that we learn. You'd help us to um, do the things that are difficult in submitting to you. We ask for your help in these things in Jesus' name. Amen.